Hello and welcome to the Doubt Society podcast, episode seven. Uh, I'm your host, Riley Morgan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Susanna McIntyre. So Susanna is the president and CEO of Atheist Republic, which is the largest atheist community in the world, last I checked. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have over 2.2 million likes on Facebook and 143,000 Instagram followers. And the Atheist Republic advocates for non-believers around the world in a variety of ways, which we will discuss today. So, Susanna, Thank thanks so for much for joining me. me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, I did notice right before I logged on here that today is actually the 12-year anniversary of Draw Muhammad uh, Day. Yes, it is. Today is Draw <laughs> Muhammad Day. Have you drawn Muhammad today? I have not, but in my defense as a, a good blasphemer i cannot draw worth the shit so <laughs> <laughs> you just have to draw a stick figure and then say this is muhammad and fair enough muhammad, and then put a little arrow to it and then you fair did, enough you depict i'll have to i'll have to do that in my uh, instagram stories post podcast just so <laughs> i can say that i i participated um so thanks for coming on i really appreciate uh, your time and i was trying to think i was like how did we connect and i think you somehow managed to follow my tiny Instagram page. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, know I why, don't, but I, I don't. Okay, yeah, I was like, maybe it was just a post or something similar. But um, yeah, you had done that and I, I clicked on, I usually, I mean, I think I have like 100 something followers. And I clicked on your page and I was like, wait a minute, I know who this is. <laughs> so I had seen <laughs> some of your podcasts and, and work in the past and obviously I'm familiar with the Atheist Republic. So um, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, um, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so let's uh, let's just jump in. So one of the first things I usually ask all the guests that I have on, um, I'm just very curious about people's own journey, like their own journey, whether they started out believers or they have always been raised as a non-believer. Um, so I just love to hear your story if you're if you're willing to share it. Yeah. Um, so I'll kind of give you an overview, and then you can like dive in if you find anything particularly interesting. Sure. Um, so I was raised as a Catholic. Um, in a pretty like liberal area. I grew up in Seattle, you know, in the nineties and two thousands. Um, but in the midst of that, I was in a very like Catholic community and Catholic bubble. I went to Catholic school, the vast majority of my education. And I joke that I was so Catholic, like I didn't know I was Catholic. Like I, (laughs) um, didn't know that I was a Catholic until, I took a Western civilization course in the ninth grade and I learned about the Reformation and I was like, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) we're Catholics. (laughs) Um, And obviously I knew that there were other Christians or other religions, stuff like that, but um, it was just such a standard throughout my life and environment that it was kind of a given. I didn't even know that there was like, I didn't understand the differences even. Um, until I took a history class. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, I started to, uh, kind of question religion more seriously when I was around the age of 12, when, um, it's, it sounds kind of silly when you talk about it now, but this is just how it happened for me. Um, I had gone to one school from K through fifth grade. And even that was like everyone I had known since the age of four. 
and my parents had decided to take me out of that school and send me to an all-girls Catholic school, uh, not even on the other side of town, like in a different city. And um, I had no say in the matter. This was happening. And um, that experience of um, not having a say in something that I felt so strongly about that I didn't want um, made me question my parents. And now I actually think it was a good decision that I went to that all-girls school. Um, but at the time, I, it made me question them because I, I really disliked this decision that they were making for me. And so I kind of, it made me question other things about them and other things that I had just assumed um, throughout my upbringing. And this included like our relationship with God. Um, and yeah, a lot of um, culture of my family is in religion and then a few years later i realized that i was bisexual and um that's obviously a big no-no and right. so i say that to kind of cognitively survive i decided to not follow god um because otherwise i'd just be continuing to live in this knowledge that i'm just like so bad and i i like bad things uh, but when I reflect on it now, I don't think I necessarily stopped believing in God. I think I thought I did at the time, but I think it was more that I made a decision to not follow those religious rules, but I still treated myself for the next 10 years as bad for um, not following kind of these religious tenets. And I think this is, I attribute a lot of that to my religious upbringing and the religious, you know, moralizing um, that I was surrounded by. And then uh, <laughs> in 2019, I was going through a lot of stuff. There are a lot of big shifts in my life. And um, I was struggling a lot with my sexuality, um, just coming to terms with it and trying to get to the root of and understand and start to shake off like the depth of shame that I experienced just regarding not even the fact that I'm attracted to women, but just the fact that I have sexual desire itself. Um, yeah. And through this, like coming to a breaking point with my relationship to sex and sexuality, I ha really had to try to dig in and understand like why do I feel this way? How did it come to feel this way? So I started to examine um, a lot of psychology and research about like cult psychology and the processes of indoctrination. You know, like how do you, because intellectually, I'm a very sex positive person. Um, I don't think that there's anything rationally wrong with anything that I desire. But emotionally, I had just so much self-loathing right so i was trying to navigate this um this big like gap this discretion like where uh i trying to get my emotional self over to the rational side where i think it's okay yeah. and so studying these um like uh the, the psychology of how these things kind of become imbued into us helps a lot and that led me through into studying critical thinking in a more structured way. And very easily when you're looking for that kind of content online, you get 
a lot of stuff that just goes into the atheist community online and a lot of debates and skepticism and all, all those sorts of things. And so being surrounded by starting to dig into that content, I started to look at this question in a completely different way. I was no longer looking at the God question from an emotional point of view or just the harm that it does to myself, but I was looking at it from a rational perspective of, is there evidence behind this claim? And when I started to think about it that way, I started to suddenly feel all of these emotional hangups start to fall away because I was no longer, um, like, why am I punishing myself for rules of a supernatural being that I don't actually have evidence to believe exists. When I started to look at it from that way, instead of this moral kind of story I was telling myself, um, it made me treat myself a lot nicer. Um, and eventually through that process, uh, I ended up becoming the CEO of Atheist Republic. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a big jump there. So, um, but before we get to that, that big jump to from becoming an atheist to now you're leading the the world's largest atheist community, uh, I'll back you up just a little bit. So um, when I was growing up, I was raised very religious and very much deeply um, embedded in purity culture um, mm -hmm. and like went through a whole like purity ceremony and like wore the ring. I literally had a ring I wore on my finger that said true love waits. I'm like a 15, 16 year old wow. guy like wearing this ring. Yeah. And so was that, was that your experience with like Catholic culture? I was like on the evangelical side of the house. Yeah, um, the whole, so that flavor of purity culture in my experience is way more deeply evangelical. Um, so it wasn't um, anything that, that was as materialized as a literal ring that you wear on your finger. Um, it's more of a just mm, generalized sex negative culture. Um, where I, so many Catholic people I know, um, express this sentiment. I call it Catholic silence. It has such a specific flavor to me, um, where it's like, we're all going to pretend that we're not all aware of this thing that's happening. Like we're, it's kind of, um, a denialism. And so... Uh, you, when something sexual comes into the environment, you know, you fast forward through it or you turn mm. off the radio or you sw switch the channel, you know, but then we like, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about like, why, why is that not okay? Like, why is it bad? It's just like you, you, you know, children are so perceptive. You pick up these messages constantly. Like no mm. one has to tell you necessarily why it's bad or why it's inappropriate. I was told I was inappropriate my entire life. Still am. <laughs> um, and you just, the, the message you're receiving is there's something about this that all the adults think is not okay and is wrong or is bad. Um, and that's just something that's, and of course you're also taught explicit things like, oh, you should be a virgin until marriage, like that kind of thing. But there wasn't as much of an emphasis on, in my experience with that, um, but of course, that's something as a Christian, you know, <laughs> like we're all aware. <laughs> that's what right. you know for sure. Right. Yeah. My uh, my mom was uh, raised in a Catholic family 
And so when she met my dad, who was like, jump up down the aisle, like Baptist kind of church, like Southern Baptist, mm. crying, like when they give the sermons, like they like came together and got married and settled in like non-denominational. And so that's like what I was raised in. But my mom was very Catholic. And it's very true that I remember one time they literally took us to church and had us watch a movie. Um, I think it was it's called How to Save a Life. And it was like a Christian-esque movie. And there's like the weakest sex scene of all time in it just like total shadows and it's very brief and the whole show is about how he gets his like girl pregnant so like it's a very main part of the storyline and i just remember my mom was like so upset that they showed that in our church but we yeah, didn't talk just about like it shadows of a silhouette <laughs> yeah yeah and we didn't talk the, about it, it it's like the mere acknowledgement that sex is happening and that sex exists yeah and it's it's very strange how they don't speak about it it's it's it, sex was unique in that way even other things that were sinful at least they were spoke about whereas like i didn't even get the talk like <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a chemistry oh, like i had to use a chemistry textbook or a biology textbook or whatever it was i to figure these things out um so yeah it's very strange why there's like that that attitude of silence that exists around that but i'd say that that's definitely prevalent in evangelical culture as well um for sure yeah, it's fascinating and you just i don't it's hard to articulate to people the um, the anxiety that like gets imbued in people because yeah. of these attitudes. Like I get so <laughs> nervous and embarrassed talking about what I'm into. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very strange how and it's I've talked to different friends over the years who were like raised in a similar manner and uh man, some of them like it just they'll like literally be a non-believer for years and the sexual shame they'll even be married sometimes they just cannot like it's so deeply embedded in them that it's just so difficult to shake and that like that's it's just it's wild it really is it's it's really unfortunate and it's just it's some for some people like last their whole life you know they really just never Mm -hmm. quite like kick it and such but um it's it's very interesting that that's kind of what what started if you always like to hear like what the initial thing was like for people that that got it going but that's a really good thing right you have like these experiences and feelings and it doesn't line up with what supposedly like your metaphysics are like your worldview and you're like but i don't feel like i should feel bad about it right (laughs) or maybe you did at the time but like you're still like it's not enough to not at least go after and like live my life and then you know you get to be older right you said you're in 2019 or whatever was it 2019 you said when you like started to yeah kind of went through this big shift yeah 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 yeah. so that's that's interesting but i'm i'm glad you're willing to like share that and talk about it because it really that's a real starting point i think for way more people than would actually admit it i think that's (laughs) true and one of the reasons why i talk about it is because when i was going through this period of just like i don't even know how to explain it like just (laughs) like almost like a like a like a breaking point um I was looking up videos, like I was trying to look up videos of like Catholic shame, like uh, like sexual shame, just trying to find more people talking about how do you overcome this? Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't really find enough of it or it didn't feel um, like it spoke to me. And uh, like sometimes it's still, it's not that it's um, difficult to talk about necessarily, um, it's there's still a part of me that feels um, 
like it's I shouldn't talk about it, uh, yeah. but I do because I know that it's helpful. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's good, and I, I applaud you for that because there's a lot of folks that, I mean, this is just talking about non-belief in general, right? And not even just like sex positivity that get to like out or they stop believing in it, but then they don't share with people or they won't stand up and say something if someone makes a shitty comment or says something about you know, whatever, or there's a chance to share with someone. And that's probably part of the reason why there's not a huge amount of resources out for the millions, I'm sure, of people who have experienced these sorts of feelings um, mm-hmm. around religion and around their bodies and then how they feel about sharing their bodies with people. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's really wild. So how then did, so you become a non-believer, you're on the internet, and then suddenly you're the CEO of <laughs> a, a large uh, organization. Uh, so how, yeah, how does that happen, story. Susanna? Yeah. Um, so the other part of my story <laughs> is that I used to be like a very wokey uh, lefty person, like totally irrational, emotionally led SJW. Um, I associate with Antifa. Um, get into all sorts of activities that they were involved in in the Bay Area, and Holy which is like a big God. center for it. Right. And um, while I was in the process of studying um, kind of how destructive ideologies kind of become implanted in us for the purposes of examining um, my own like religious sexual trauma, I actually started to notice some patterns that actually applied to like a little of my political involvement. And I was like, oopsies, I wasn't trying to uncover that. <laughs> I'm seeing some <laughs> red flags that I was not ready for. <laughs> Anyways, so um, one of the things I learned through studying how people recover from destructive ideologies is that they are told to go purposefully seek out critics of a for- former members of a group and critics of that group. And this was something that was very difficult for me at first because I literally thought that I, I had such a felt experience of when I was looking up information that contradicted my deeply held political beliefs that I was involved in like far right stuff. Like I sincerely believed that. And I felt so naughty and dirty. I'm like, I can't tell anyone about this. The fact that I'm even like, I can't tell anyone. I like, <laughs> so, um, I found it fascinating to go watch debates from people from like a religious group and an ex-person of that religious group because it's a really quick way to get both sides of the argument. And um, so I started watching like the atheist experience and stuff, but atheist experience, um, they, it's, it's very Christianity centered. Um, and I really wanted to, I'm so curious about the world. This is like a central part of who I am. I was like, I want to learn more about other stuff. And so that's, this is how I accidentally discovered the ex-Muslim movement. Um, and that just blew like my whole world wide open. It changed my mind on so many things. Um, because why, I mean, I can get into that later, but long story short, I found the secular jihadist podcast Mm -hmm. and, um, with Ali Rizvi and Armin Navabi and, they, yeah, deeply influenced me and really shifted my thinking on a lot of things because the way that they thought about things was so much more consistent than the way that the people I was surrounded by and the ideologies that I was surrounded by, the way that it treated people or, the, or it was applied. So much more consistent. 
And I really appreciated that. Um, and so I reached out to them one day in the live chat and I was like, you guys like kind of de-radicalized me from Antifa, like, by the way, thank you. And they were like, what? Oh my God, we have to have you on the show. Um, so I was a guest on their show and that was the first time I talked to them. And I had also been consuming Atheist Republic content because I loved the news show that we do every week. Um, cause it taught me so much about the world, like areas of the world I had never heard about. And, um, so I told Armin like, oh, you usually, you used to have like an ex-Christian on the show to give that perspective. Um, but she's not there anymore. Like, do you need an ex-Christian? Cause like, I'm ready, I'm ready to fill in. And he was like, I'm going to say yes right now. So you better meet it. So <laughs> I uh, joined and I was uh, on the news show for a few months and um, the previous and founding CEO, she had to step away um, to take care of some personal things. And uh, basically, they approached me. They elected me to the board. And the rest is history. There you <laughs> it was go. crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's quite the series of events. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to bring you back to the left wing and the Antifa thing. Because um, yeah, that critical thinking really is a bitch, isn't it? <laughs> once, you <let> start it <laughs> once you let it start going, right? It really kind of gets in there and you start finding it places where you're like, oh, like, how did you end up over here? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I thought you were just over here where I left you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's actually that's a super interesting to me because I I tend to be very center, kind of a little right, but obviously the right's kind of insane as well. Um, so it's funny that you say that because so often it's it's very much like when you get into the um, ex-Muslim movement, you begin to see how some of these liberal principles that are so um, proudly touted over here in the West or even just the United States uh, don't really play very well around the world and you start to realize that maybe the most important minority is the minority of the individual um mm -hmm. and individual rights um so yeah I, I how what was it like what was the first like uh brick that kind of fell out of the antifa leftist kind of narrative for you oh my god there were, i mean there are so many i think Part of it, what it was, was just generally allowing myself to question, like talk about doubt society, like allowing the doubt to actually come forward because there was so much about um, the dogma that was surrounding me that directly contradicted what I had learned. So I have a background in psychology and it was just so contrary to everything I had understood through my education, um, mainly a lot of the um, dogma about, you know, oh, punching Nazis and going after white supremacists, you know, we just need to kick their teeth in and all this stuff. Um, and when I, you know, and also when you um, come from the, the perspective of, oh, you're a white person, it's your problem to fix white supremacy um, wholesale. I was like, okay, so I'm a white person. Let's go figure out how to fix white supremacists. So I started researching this and everything I researched was like, mm, all of your tactics are not going to work. Like every, all the research that I have found or personal anecdotal stories and organizations that literally do this on a daily basis, they say what gets people out is actually like compassion and experiences with the group that they hate that disproves the dogma that they have been indoctrinated with. Like you need, you have like a, you have a, you have a dog dogma that says that something about this group is like super negative, like we're evil and they need to have so many positive experiences with that group that they hate 
like that it just overwhelms the dogma because they're like I've had such a wealth of positive experiences. It, it so wholly disproves this dogma. Like, and that means they need to have exposure to people who they've been taught to hate. And that group that they've been taught to hate needs to be willing to engage with them um, compassionately and just like, like a normal person, like not confrontationally and not th- threatening you physically. Um, because if actually if they are um, threatened, then it builds persecutory delusion. Yeah. It actually deepens their dogma. So I'm like, all this stuff you say about, you know, doing harm to, you know, these people who are, they're certainly in hate groups. I'm not like, of course, I'm, I'm not like saying, oh, you know, they're just your normal, nice, sweet person. Um, <laughs> like, uh, but... Um, it's, it's not going to work. It's actually going to hurt the problem. So, but I didn't allow myself to like think these things or when I would literally experience people being treated differently on the basis of their skin tone or their identity group. Um, I didn't really allow myself to fully be like, no, that's wrong. Instead, I justify it through like a critical, a badly applied critical theory lens, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, like I have literally, I mean, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is so crazy. Um, this happens constantly. And granted, I'm in an area of the country that is more like hype, maybe the most hyper left. But I've been at parties where um, it's like a house party and they put me in charge of the door. And they say, okay, Susanna, you have to make sure people pay to get in the party, but white people have to pay and other people don't have to pay. People of color don't have to pay. And I just let everyone in for free. Um, because even from a woke perspective, I, this, this lily white girl is going to stop people and say, oh no, I'm, I'm, I, this is what race I think you are now you have to pay. Like even from a woke perspective, that's not going to go over well. (laughs) let alone a liberal perspective. (laughs) So I just let everyone in for free because I'm like, I am not going to stop anyone on the basis of my judgment of their, my perception of their race to be like, no, you have to pay to get in. That's crazy. Um, so that's just one example, but I still see that stuff around to this day. Um, and yeah, just allowing myself to be like, actually, this doesn't represent my values. This isn't the kind of society that I want. This isn't what I want to push for. I actually do want to push for a post-racial society. Um, like, theoretically. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. And one thing that really was a huge shift for me, I, it, I describe it almost like a twig snapping, um, was... On a secular jihadist episode, um, Yasmin Muhammad talks about this experience she had when she was a child. And so for those of you who are not aware, um, Yasmin Muhammad is a uh, Canadian who has Egyptian and Palestinian heritage. And she grew up in like a super Salafi, like Wahhabi family um, that eventually forced her to get married into Al-Qaeda. And when she was a child, um, they would physically abuse her. And one of her teachers caught on and it went through the child protective system. And um, when the judge actually was there to, you know, rule on the case in some manner, um, basically 
he tossed it off and excused it. And it was like, oh, well, because this is what they do in their culture. You know, like, oh, well, you know, this is what they do. Like, who am I to say that you can't, you know, this is what you, but this is what they do in your culture. Something like that. Um, and, and she was talking about what that told her as a child. It was like, they're, they're making, from their perspective, they're making some effort to be sensitive to minorities. From my perspective, it told me if I was a blonde girl with blue eyes, this would be unacceptable. Um, and I don't know. I, when you when when it's put in those terms, it just really shifted things for me. And so, yeah, that was that that really stands out. I think learning about the ex-Muslim movement, it really changed my thinking on. Because, like, I call it, like, in inclusivity dogma or, like, multiculturalism culture. Um, because inclusivity, multiculturalism, pluralism are actually extremely important things to me. Um, but not when it... But there's a certain flavor of it. Right. There's... That the, they're criticizing. Um, that doesn't allow for dissent within minority groups. That... Um, uh, you know, demonizes people within the minority within the minority by when yeah. then when they're trying to be self-critical about their own in-group, suddenly they get demonized by a larger out-group saying, "Oh no, you're a native informant, you're a traitor, you know, you you are just pandering to white supremacy to demonize, you know, a minority group." And they're like, "What the hell? This is my family. I'm not trying to what like <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, a a lot of attitudes like that I've, I'm, I've been, I've personally experienced. Um, and when you see it repeated over and over, it will just drive you crazy. And to part of why the ex Muslim movement was important to me was because where in, when you're in a woke mindset, you as a white person are not allowed to have these criticisms and thoughts yourself. No, but especially when you buy into this whole narrative of lived experience, but when you hear them talk about their own lived experience, they're allowed to talk about it. It's okay for them to talk about it. Um, and so I, I'd be listening and I felt so naughty. I was like, oh my gosh, am I even like, like I can't believe they're talking about this. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that having kind of that... Um, location of identity very neatly was able to sneak through all of the woke critical thought barriers that I put up. I had, I had been putting up because, oh, it's okay for them. And it's because it's okay because of this and that and that. So it was able to get through ultimately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so many points to touch on there. So let's see where we're going to go first. Uh, first of all, so much of this, uh, and this has been properly identified as so by uh, Douglas and Murray, um, so much of like the, that sort of far left thinking is in a way like religious thinking, right? The idea that, like you said, as a white person, you're responsible for white to go resolve white supremacy is very similar to the idea of original sin or to the idea yes. of inherited sin. Um, it is mm -hmm. almost a perfect uh, mirror image of this idea of this like inherited guilt. And it's a, a huge step away from the idea of individuality 
and that individualism mm-hmm. and that diversity comes from who you are as an individual and as a person, as a thinker, right? And that, that's that's what it that's what it comes from, uh, and that leads right into. Um, you said what they do in their culture. That was the justification from the judge, right? Um, I, I'm pretty sure you're something familiar like with, that. I can't remember yeah. exactly. People but, should go read her book, though. Sure, yeah, and I'm familiar with with, with Yasmin. Um, that is exactly what Majin Nawaz identifies as the bigotry of low expectations. I mean, precisely, perfectly defined that, and it continues to this day. Um, it is unbelievable. Um, it's, part of that is the loss of confidence that the West has in its own ethic and in its own idea of right and wrong um, that we've completely lost, that has crumbled within our own self-hatred and self-guilt and self-destruction, uh, really. Um, and we are unable now to stand up and say to someone from like a country just because the, the majority of the people there look different than us, we're no longer capable of saying hey, you shouldn't beat the shit out of your wife. Yeah. That's when you know we've gone too far. I mean. Oh, my gosh. Have you ever? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, if you really want a mind-blowing experience, you should look at how some, um, like, critical theorists look at female genital mutilation. I... I my Ion Hersey Ali book. Like, who went to Barnard, like, send me that stuff. And they're like, the way you're talking about FGM is, like, so not okay. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I also hate male circumcision, too, just as much, for the record. So I don't think I am being a hypocrite. Well, you think, oh, well, you know, just because in the West, you know, it's okay for men and it's not okay for women, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, say that it's, you know, bad for women over there. I'm like, well, I say it's bad for men, too, goddamn. Yeah, let's just be universal that, about it. Oh, my God, that made me so mad. <laughs> yeah, well, I would think so. I mean, how can anyone, you know, you said your moment where you kind of apostate, or it was uh, the apostate prophet? which podcast or which podcast was it again apostate secular jihadist secular jihadist that's it i always get the the two of those mixed up um my moment there was probably reading ion hersi ali um Mm -hmm. years back and realized and and she was subject to to fgm and um after that i i thought well good god um and then if reading christopher hitchens work he was the first person who ever pointed me to the idea that maybe male circumcision wasn't a great idea and then you look into like the medical side effects of some of that and it's just mind-blowing that's not talked about at all my friends think i'm a little crazy because anytime it comes up i'm like i will not circumcise my kids and they're always like i'm very serious about it hell yeah good for (laughs) you they're all like blah blah i'm like that is not my call if my kid if my son grows up to be 18 decides he wants to do that by all means but i'll bet my life on the fact that he won't like (laughs) you know it's not yeah, yeah. so it's, a it's yeah it's wild. so crazy i think male circumcision wasn't something that i took seriously for a long time um i remember one time like turning on a documentary to try to watch a documentary that's kind of about this debate and like turning it off laughing like oh haha like who cares this much about baby dicks <laughs> and right. then now when i think about it i'm like that's such a disgusting attitude that's such a disgusting attitude. Like, this is a huge problem. This is, like, unacceptable that this is something that is normalized, that we torture children like this. It's insane. For no reason. For no reason. No. Literally yeah. no reason. Yeah. The medical supposed, like, 
it's unclean or whatever, like the justifications are for it are so obscene. It's all been disproven. It's, it's, it has. And when it goes, I mean, I'm not saying like every dude who's circumcised is going to have like a terrible time in life. No, like it's obviously not the case. But if it goes no. poorly, like you have, <laughs> you're causing a real problem for this individual now. Like if you do this badly, um, why are we, yeah, so why are we doing it all? Yeah, it's another thing that religion has touched um, in relation to sexuality it has managed to completely uh, fuck up, I would <laughs> I would venture to say. 100%. I mean, think about the attitude. Like, the, if you're willing to cut off a part of your child's penis, like, what does that tell you about your attitude towards sex? Like, as yeah. an ideology. That's so wild. To, to do it for the purposes of, like, a, a blood covenant. Yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah, and it's amazing how that managed to escape that and just become like the norm throughout Western culture. Like it's not even just a Jewish yeah, yeah, yeah. practice. It, it obviously still is, but it's it's just prevalent like in the West, at least in the United States. I really don't know much about Europe. I would imagine. Oh, in I, Europe, I, it's not as common. In okay, the US, it's just like assumed. So strange. It's so strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone's going to have to be the. <laughs> Get, someone's got to be the person who becomes known as the as the uh circumcision guy i don't know if that's me i don't mind harping on it every now and then but i don't know if i want my face on that book <laughs> oh there's this one god what's his name i think his name might be dr brian erp e-a-r-p i think that's his name but he's that guy <laughs> okay well, i'm gonna yeah, write that down great. i'm gonna write that down because if i don't I'll, i will uh Brian Earp. Yeah, I think that's a big one. Obviously, the the FGM is a huge one, though. But it's very interesting to me to hear you say this because I, I it always blows my mind when I meet people who are non-believers who are still that far left because it just I just I can't in my own brain as you clearly could not either. I can't line it up with once you learn about like ex-Muslims and that movement. It's just the ability to then adhere to identity politics. I, I truly don't know how people manage it. And that it's it's truly a form of cognitive dissonance. Like they must just hold these two things separately. But I really think to be a good critical thinker, once you let that in, you have to let it run rampant as much as it hurts to have to like tear out a part of yourself and like, yeah, you know, yeah, political yeah. or feel, uh, like religious or relational or sexual. And every time it's just like, oh, this again, and it hurts. And you have to like go through this process of like, transformation where like you're one thing and you have to become another thing and it's so uncomfortable um but really i think like if that's if you're truly going to try to think in a critical manner i think it's non-negotiable yeah i agree i think i don't know in terms of like how identity politics can be a religion um it's really interesting i feel torn about it because um there are certain instances where I think it would be stupid to say that identity politics are like, we should never promote them. Like it is useful. It does have a utility. Um, we should use identity politics, but I hate when people make that the qualification or like your, any, any given identity group that you belong to is not a qualification for a job. And I like it drives me nuts when, especially politically, the Democrats mm-hmm. have been like acting like that's a qualification. It's not. It's not. I, I I really do value meritocracy. And do we have a perfect meritocracy? Of course not. 
we should always be trying to improve it. I don't think we should be trying to tear it down. I don't think that's I don't think that's the answer to the problems in our lack of meritocracy because we we don't really have merit that always exceeds to the top. That people do have legitimate um, circumstances that they were born into that prevent them from their their merit from shining. You know, like I, we can acknowledge that. That doesn't make you like because there's some anti woke people that like you think that because you acknowledge that they're like, oh my god, you're an SJW, and you're like, mm, that's life, man. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, James Lindsay has written some really interesting stuff about like social justice things as religion but he's kind of really gone off the deep end of like over the past year and a half so i don't i don't know yeah but it, it, bog hosian have have wrote that i remember have written that together yeah 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 it, it's a really interesting way of structuring this thought um especially by talking about you know like who was chosen um and i don't know as someone who studied um like moral development uh, and children, I don't, we can call social justice culture, whatever is a religion, or it's really just pretty basic social psychology. Yeah. Um, people want an in-group and an out-group, or people want to be a part of the in-group. And part of the ways that you demonstrate that you're in the in-group is you, you know, have certain language and you demonstrate that you know the language that they use, that you, um, are willing to, um, maybe persecute people who are in the out group, um, that you, it, stuff like that. Like Jonathan Haidt talks about this, why you see this so strongly in college students is because they're trying to, um, earn merit within their own in-group. And mm. one of the ways to do that is to go after people who are not in the in-group, um, it, so yeah, we can call it a religion, but I, in many ways it's just, yeah basic social functioning yeah i definitely don't think they're perfectly perfectly and like analogous or they're not they're, you can't the analogy mm -hmm. just go it only goes so far um yeah but it's certainly true like when you you know you start making it a requirement for job positions it starts to get very confusing because there certainly exists um you know blacks for example who would think opposite of the way that a black person would like be accepted to think right you have like the thomas souls of the of the world um so it's very it's very funny to me that that's a a prerequisite and it, it's of course also true that yeah like our skin color does to a degree inform our thinking about the world but it doesn't perfectly and so to use it as a metric it's very it's very it can be a very very dangerous game like you it's said it's very cynical yeah it's very cynical it actually isn't honoring those people at all it's just seeing so. them as like a box a quota yeah you're just getting checked off and i mean we've seen this run now i mean talk about discrimination against people of color if you go look at the ivy leagues now and the sat requirements they hold right for um uh, asians doesn't line up with what they hold for other racial groups right yeah. you gotta be uh... i wonder are they still getting sued over that i know they had a little lawsuit a few years ago i don't know what the status of it is though. i i don't either but i know that was well established and every time i mentioned that to someone they have they've never heard of it even people that aren't even like they don't have to be that, that far left like it's just like never has entered their minds 
they've never seen such oh, a thing wow. that could such a thing could yeah. happen um i'm like yeah it's like <laughs> i don't know i'm like how did you guys not see this but it has to do with i mean our the way we spend our time on social media and how perfectly curated you know all the social medias have it so it's like feed it's exactly yeah. what we want to see and and nothing else but um yeah it's it's pretty wild so that's all right. That's a pretty wild tangent there. Oh, we'll bring it back a little bit. <laughs> it's okay, it's, <laughs> it's gonna be one. it's gonna be the political Dow society here any minute. Uh, no, I I, uh, I I I mean I have political opinions just like anyone else does. And I, I like to. I, I don't think you can talk about one without talking about the other to a degree. It just to a degree, sometimes it naturally follows. Um, but going back to so you come to believe these things. Um, what is it in you that says okay I believe this now I'm gonna be a person who gets on a stage and talks about it and leads things. What is it? Is that just a personality thing? I always like to ask people that because lots of people, you know, share our opinions, but they don't go start a podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. I I tend, I just threw myself into the deep end, I guess. Like, oh, the first time I ever talk publicly, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm here to talk about my experience in Antifa. Like, and this is the first time anyone's really hearing that I'm no longer like that too. You know, like yeah. it was a very intense experience. <laughs> um, uh, so why am I so public or why, why do I put myself out there? I think it's because, um, I, when I was in my early 20s, like, I really believed that I was living in, like, a fascist authoritarian country. I was, oh I really, I really sincerely believed that. Um, and so that really explains a lot of me, my behavior. Like, I am going to resist against this seriously. Because this was, this was a sincerely held belief. Um, and then when... I opened my mind and started to listen to the experiences of mostly people who emigrated here. They're like, this is the kind of government that I grew up under. This is the restrictions that I was used to. This is how I used to navigate these restrictions and the thrill and the fear that I felt. Um, This is the cost. This is the price that people I know pay. This is the price that I paid to be able to be in this country where I have free expression. Like, being exposed to that, having people who are very close to me, um, who have given up a lot um, to be able to openly dissent, um, to be able to, you know, utilize their free, their protective free expression to the fullest extent, um, and also becoming close to a lot of people who don't have that because of where they live and they maybe never will. Um, it, it really, I just really felt this sense of duty. Um, I, this is kind of, this is kind of like a Catholic part of me that stuck. Like I was really taught this idea of like a Catholic duty of, if you have something, it is your obligation to go exert that in favor of those who do not have it. And so now I interpret and I, I interpret that in a way that doesn't involve God or his commandments or whatever. Yeah. But I, and that's something that I think was really deeply imbued in me. And I felt like it would almost be an insult to the people who taught me the value 
of these freedoms if I did not take advantage of the freedom that I had. And if I didn't use my freedom to talk about the people who don't have the liberty that I have, that don't have the safety that I have. Because um, I also know people who, you know, speak out and under much more dangerous circumstances. I'm like, right. I'm perfectly safe. Like, I'm, I'm fine. What excuse do I have? You know, like I, um, yeah, I just really felt passionately about talking about this issue of free expression because it, it changed my mind so drastically. I think it's the bedrock of a liberal society. Um, and it made me want to just talk about it like with everyone. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I guess I just kind of went full force into it because of that own yeah like a almost like compulsion yeah i i i completely agree it's 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 when you go through an experience where how you think about religion is completely changed and your whole identity is wrapped up in it and your sexuality is wrapped up in it and all that you suddenly go through an experience that alters how you feel about that. Like I was in, I was in college to be a pastor. Like that's what I went to college to become. And then I went through this whole experience and it fundamentally changes you. And here mm-hmm. in the West, we are so spoiled. I'm like sitting in my Bible college dorm, just like watching hitch videos and, you know, scrolling through the internet with everything that's ever been written about atheism at my fingertips and, you know, I have to put up with, like, you know, my family's pushback, you know, which I have a great relationship with everyone in my family to this day. Like, I love them to death. Um, so, like, I don't have to suffer any of these, like, crazy consequences, right, and have all these resources. And then you, like, f- find them, like, the, the ex-Muslim community. And as a person who's had an experience like that, you're just like, oh, my goodness. Like, they don't have resources like they don't and i'm not over here saying like oh they live on the other side of the world they don't have access to the internet no a lot no, of these no, things no. don't it's exist more like support like yeah they're stigmatized. yeah and they don't exist a lot of these just works don't exist like in arabic for example that's uh uh ideas beyond borders right mm-hmm. um is you know does wonderful wonderful work and uh, in the past few years have translated a massive amount of both articles and books um into arabic and so it's just i feel the same way where it's if you have this meaningful experience, you just like feel like you have to share it. And I think that's a lot of people in general, right? They go through something traumatic and then it becomes like just like part of their identity and they just can't help but share it because it's just their story and just it's meaningful to them. And the fact that someone else might not be able to accomplish that or might be killed for it, um, mm-hmm. that's just, you know, I, I, yeah, when you love talking about something or just even just to speak about it, to be able to think that you can't even talk about it, like, it's it has to be the bedrock i completely agree with you yeah i like when i i was so you know i really have to try to be kind to my past radical self because now i'm so frustrated and disgusted with how much i took for granted and how much i was willing to throw away on the basis of like the presumptions and ideologies that i had um 
Like now I look at the Bill of Rights and I'm like, oh, that's the sexiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't think um, I've ever heard someone describe the Bill of, Bill of Rights as sexy. You ever just look at her and you're like, oh, yes. Oh, those liberties. Oh. Maybe, um, <laughs> I, I, I felt that way a little bit about the Statue of Religious Freedom that Jefferson wrote, probably. Yeah, so I, 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 I get that. <laughs> yeah, hang that up on your wall. Um, <laughs> I've meant so, to. Not yet, but I've meant yeah. to. Um. When I learned that there are, like, still blasphemy laws in the world. I didn't know this until, I mean, given my life, like, fairly recently. And that people are sentenced to death by the state and yeah. executed for blasphemy. I, this It was outrageous to me. And, um, yeah, that became a really dear, like, cause to me. Because um, I just, I, uh, it's it's such an important issue that people don't know enough about. They, they truly don't. And it's amazing because the countries in which this happened, their representatives sit on Twitter, like their, their political reps sit on Twitter and shame the West over every little event that goes through the news. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. and these are the same people like we do massive amounts. The West does business with every day and we buy their oil, not pointing fingers. And, you know, we do all these things, right? And yet there's no sort of, pushback it's almost non-existent against how they treat women and how they treat even young young people who may stand up and say something that is considered not an acceptable way to think and then they're killed Mm -hmm. or they just vanish or their family kills them uh it's it's almost unbelievable and we sit in our freaking houses and watch handmaid's tale and we're just like ah it's always so happy it's fiction and they're like uh it was based on women in iran so yeah i'm like this is uh. this is yeah the same sort of things you know happening all the time and i think it's funny because people think it's like based on the u.s and like where we're going they're like oh this is an omen i'm like it's not an omen like it's happening like this is the same it thing happened. it's happening less yeah. than 50 years ago yeah i think oh my gosh it's so true i one thing that drives me crazy is this hypocrisy from well-meaning, like, well-meaning, like, liberal-type people of when you criticize Islam in particular, um, they, you know, throw up their hands so quickly. When if you were to say the exact same thing, point out the exact same problems with Christianity, they'd be like, oh my god, yeah, that's so terrible. It's so terrible how they're so homophobic. Yeah. I'm like, mm, but if we just look, like, shift... If we shift from the world's largest religion to the world's second largest religion, suddenly it's not okay. No. <laughs> yeah, it, it drives me crazy and it frustrates me because they're stifling the voices of the people who are our allies around the world. Like the people who are left leaning around the world when they're like, oh no, you can't talk about you know Islamic homophobia. I'm like, you're you're shitting on your LGBT brothers and sisters in Egypt or, you know, yeah. like, um, or in Iran, like, and suddenly it's not okay. It's this failure to understand, and this is so basic, that just because a group is a minority here, that doesn't mean that they're a minority around the world, which is so ironic because these are the types that always accuse other people of being American-centric. And American yeah. <laughs> exceptionalism is yes. whatever. And then I'm like, well, you're the one who's being an American exceptionalist because you're the one saying that we're exceptionally bad in all things. 
which is objectively untrue. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then simultaneously say we're the worst place on earth, but also let's let everyone immigrate here. Like who is a, I'm like, well, hold on. Like, and I'm not even saying anything about immigration, but those two beliefs just don't, they don't line up perfectly. Like, wait, why do you want them here? If this is the, like, you know, it's just, it's very, it's very funny yeah, like this that. this is and, the belly of the beast. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's so true how they have the blinders on because when you speak about Christianity, people think white people. Um, but being an evangelical, not too many years ago, I remember uh, being in evangelism class in college or whatever they were calling it uh, as code back then, mission studies or something. And uh, the, one of the great changes in Christianity is um, has been this uh, the switch, which is, um, I can't remember the name they have for it, but more or less, uh, less and less Christians are found in Europe and America, and more and more are found in Africa and around the world, um, which would mean, <laughs> based on geography, that a lot of Christians aren't white. Surprise, surprise, everybody. Uh, and um, Muslims are not all brown. <laughs> in fact, there are many no. shades of brown. There's Asian Muslims. Uh, there's Muslims right all over the world. There are white Muslims. Uh, so it's it's so funny Um how somehow this idea becomes attached again to race or again to the idea that these are persecuted people. We just, I think in America, we're just like, oh, everyone everywhere else is just has this terrible life and they're all poor and living day to day. It's it's so, like you said, it's such an American exceptionalist view from the very people who, who would be shaming you for Amer- your American exceptionalism. Yeah. It, yeah. It's unreal. It's so fascinating. It, yeah. it, it, it really is. Um, so what have you, I know in the past you guys have done different things, uh, Atheist Republic has done different things to raise awareness about this, and I believe I attended one of your events, um, The it was like the International Blasphemy Day, where you had like a whole panel, um, I think it was the most recent nice. one, like, yeah, like a year ago or so, I had I had joined that, um, I think it was about a year ago now, um, and they had a large, I mean, Seth Andrews was supposed to be there. And he didn't yeah, show, yeah, and he sent a video. Blasphemers from Center for Inquiry Canada. Yes, yeah, I, that was one of the. I don't know how many people showed up, like eighty of us, maybe or hundred or something. But I don't it was know. A, it was a good time. But I, I popped into that, and I remember he sent in a video. But um, so you guys have organized that. So what else? What else do you all do that? Um, is, is it events like uh, that? Well, I, I should just say that I participated in it. Technically, that was put on by the Center for Inquiry Canada. Um, yes, so we've done right. a lot of things over the years. Um, back in 2019, we had an international protest for Sohail Arabi. Um, Sohail Arabi was a, well, he is, um, an Iranian atheist and political prisoner who was sentenced to death for blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad in 2014. And his death sentence was later commuted. And so in 2019, um, our community around the world put on this huge protest um, in, I don't even know how many cities. It was a huge undertaking, Um, especially in front of uh, like Iranian embassies or consulates um, in support of him, just trying to raise more awareness about the issue, raise awareness about this issue of like the death penalty for blasphemy. Um, And, the good news is, is that within the past, oh my gosh, I feel like it was within maybe the past six to nine months, he actually was released from prison, um, which is phenomenal. Amazing. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and um, another thing that we've done is, <laughs> this is, there's a huge long story, I don't even know if it's long, there's a larger backstory to this. 
but we have something called the Blasphemous Art Project, mm-hmm. where we take um, different religious deities from different cultures around the world and um, show them in basically blasphemous ways, most of which are sexual. <laughs> um, and uh, that's something that I enjoy a lot. It's something that's very creative. Um, it. I also think of it as a real conversation starter because um, a lot of people are like, why the hell are you doing this? Uh, <laughs> and so it gives me an opportunity to talk about like why this is an issue, why this is important, and also kind of a teachable moment for the value of free expression in general. Um, and because it's, um, so many people have these ideas about, oh, we, offense, you know, taking offense and free expression, um, and, oh, that shouldn't be okay because it hurts people's feelings and stuff like that. So it gives me an opportunity to talk about, like, why I disagree with that, why it's important that offense, um, not become a inhibitor of free expression, why we challenge red lines, um, yeah, a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. And we talk about it constantly also on our, on our shows and on our platforms. Yeah. And I think that, that alone is the biggest part, right? So much in life is just shared from just word of mouth, right? Whole massive companies have been built just on the idea of, you know, just sharing things, um, word of mouth. So you bring up literally what was kind of like my next point here on the, on a very loose outline, which is, I know you had shared some images a few years back. Um, specifically of a Hindu goddess, right? Uh, yes, a very, yes a, did. In a very, in a very sexy pose, um, and that caught you guys some major, <laughs> some major press, and also some attention from Facebook. Um, so mm-hmm. this might wrap into a little bit to the politics we were talking about earlier. But um, talk a little bit about that and uh, about how you see like big tech and maybe the worries you see there with the, the the community and blasphemy laws. Yeah. So the larger background is that um, through some anti-Islamic activism that our founder, Armin Nababi, was doing at the time, he noticed that he had happened to be picking up a lot of attention from um, Hindu nationalist types of people. Um, for those who are not aware, it's also called by the word Hindutva, which is it's I kind of describe it as a roughly Hindu equivalent of Islamism. It's a heavily politicized form of Hinduism um, centered around um, the the dominance of Hindu identity. And um, so these are people who are not against Islam. I mean, they are against Islam, but they mostly just hate Muslims as people. And that's something that we don't tolerate. We're like, we're against the ideologies, but we are super hardcore about human rights. <laughs> right. And um, so we noticed that we were kind of attracting that kind of audience. And so what we do, the, our modus operandi, is to show that we have no sacred cows. We turn <laughs> your sacred cows into burgers. Okay. So <laughs> what he, Armin tweeted a photo of the Hindu goddess Kali. And she's like in a kind of a pinup pose. And the, the caption was, why didn't anyone tell me that Hindu goddess, no, Hinduism had such sexy goddesses. Why would anyone choose any other religion? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Which is actually like a compliment. <laughs> yeah. I mean. and, um, 
what followed was a firestorm that was unlike anything anyone has ever seen. Like, I've known people who have been doing anti-Islamic activism for 15, 20 years. And they were like, I have never seen the storm of abuse and the level of abuse that you guys were put through. Like, targeted harassment um, because of this one tweet. And it just escalated. And um, this is kind of how the Blasphemous Art Project got started. Because um, they were... Um, I mean, uh, they were going after us with, you know, like deep fake pornography of ourselves, um, oh even involving like, family members, even people who are children, um, uh, like threats like I've never experienced ever. Um, it just like the level of vitriol is like, I can't even describe it. And so, but we're like, we're not going to let them intimidate us. Like we're not that's what they want. They want us to stop. We're not going to, we're not going to stop either. We continue and they continue to give us this abuse. And then we can highlight how toxic this is. We can use that to our advantage. We'll highlight how toxic your behavior is over this religion, over blasphemy. Yeah. yeah. Or you'll, you'll become desensitized to it and you'll stop. In which case we also succeeded because that means that hopefully next time you're exposed to something that's maybe a little bit blasphemous or offends your religious sentiments, you won't react as strongly. So kind of those are kind of two primary motivations with taking up this kind of this form of activism. Yeah. There's um, and this has caused a lot of attention to come down on us from India. Um, India, if people are not aware, has had um, a like very right-wing prime minister since 2014, and he's a representative from the BJP party, which is um, had, it's a Hindu nationalist party. Um, and no, I won't go into the history of that party. Um, basically, the government is coming after us. <laughs> so. <laughs> The Indian government has um, blocked our main Atheist Republic website on many different ISPs. They've blocked our Blasphemous Art website um, under um, uh, security code, under IT law on the for the purposes of, of um, preserving national security um, and preventing interference in India's sovereignty. I'm not even kidding. Um, they... Uh, ordered Facebook to block our uh, main Facebook page to every user in India. So if you're in India, you cannot access our Facebook page. So because of that, we lost access to th over 300,000 of our like community members. Um, they also, we've been taken to court multiple times. We were mentioned before the Supreme Court of India in a case in which the person was using our blasphemy to justify creating a governmental body that will oversee social media and remove hate speech more quickly. Um, it doesn't sound authoritarian at all. Not no. like, don't be, don't be worried about that. Um, and we've also had numerous other uh, police reports filed against us. I, I don't even know how many police reports filed against us. Politicians coming after us, like blue checks and everything. Celebrity, Bollywood celebrities coming after us. Oh um, and atheist 
started or atheism started trending for the first time in India because of us. And um, we have had a lot of legal complaints filed against us, which leads us to this is another thing about our blasphemy is a lot of it is focused on India right now because we are involved in a court case that is before the Delhi High Court where um, a full year after the sexy Cali thing and after Armin and myself already got suspended from Twitter, I still don't know why Armin was suspended for things that do not violate community policies. Um, again, like targeted mass harassment um, and mass like false reporting. Um, and so <laughs> a full year after this, all happened. We got noticed that they, there was a legal um, complaint filed against us in the Delhi High Court or petition, and they were petitioning the court to remove some of our tweets, to make the court, asking the court to rule in their favor, and the court would then send an order to Twitter, and Twitter would have to remove the tweets. Um, and the tweets are so like innocuous or. Is that the right word? Yeah. They're so mild, it's ridiculous. So one of them, for example, is one of the most standard atheist memes you'll see ever. It just happened that the subject of it was Hinduism. It was um, like an old couple sitting with like a god man. And um, it says, your source of ignorance is my source of income. Like I've seen that meme for like every religion. It's like the most mild atheist meme. And then another one of the tweets that, um, or two of the tweets that they were asking to be removed was a speech was advertising a speech that I was giving about the blasphemous art project. And it happened to have a little drawing of, um, the Hindu goddess Kali making out with goddess Sita, um, which, which is an art we made to promote marriage equality in India. Um, and so yeah, they, this was, was so offensive to them. And, so it was obviously, very obviously, a bias about our content against Hinduism. They must have gone through so much of our content to even find this because we don't even, like, have that much content about Hinduism. Like, you went looking for this. <laughs> nice. Um, and so we've been involved in that court case for a while now because um, the Indian legal system is, like, notoriously slow and overburdened. Um, and... Yeah, so that, that's a major thing we're working on right now. And a lot of people don't understand, like, why we're getting involved with this case. You know, like, we have legal representation in India. And I, you know, to me, it's because it gives us the opportunity to highlight the threat, the huge threat to secularism that is undergoing in India right now, the world's largest so-called secular democracy. Um, so it gives us an, it's an opportunity to highlight that. And um, really, there are so many people I know in India who can't speak about it in the way that they would want to. And I feel like we have the ability to stand up for like the other atheists in India who could have the blasphemy law they're used against them. Now, it's not as severe as in Pakistan, like they're not going to be sentenced to death, but they can still be legally harassed with all this stuff. Um, and they don't have, you know, the means to stand up for it for like if we if they're coming after us for a meme as mild as that like what does your average like indian non-believer what are they gonna do when someone comes after them starts pulling up their twitter logs or start yeah um and 
so because of this whole fiasco over the past two years, we have um, started to orient a lot of our content or our focus towards India, um, partially because I find it so fascinating um, and partially because this really caught our attention. We, the, the scale of the reaction against us tells us is that this is an area that needs some focus. Right. You know, like Christians have been very desensitized to, towards blasphemy for decades, if not, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. The Islamic world, obviously, it's still a very hot button issue. But in comparison to how it was in the 80s, like we can see a difference in the severity of it. It's still very serious, but it's completely different. And, but then the reaction of this, it was like, oh, you haven't had a lot of people poking at you, have you? You haven't had a lot of people just coming out and, you know, saying what they thought about your sacred cow, literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was like, the, the best part um, of the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so we were like, okay, we need to put some focus here because if we start to have these conversations, like hopefully this will also make life easier for the people in these communities as well. Because if they start to have dissent, if they start to have criticism, hopefully it won't be, you know, one of the first times someone was confronted with something like that and the reaction won't be as big. Or maybe they'll be aware that this is something that a, a, an opinion that people might have about their religion and not be so offended. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed building our community in India um, and being in touch with so many people there and um, getting to talk about that country. My lawyers have told me that we're not, we shouldn't travel there. <laughs> They're like, don't go to India right now. <laughs> I really want to, though. I really want to one day. So... Maybe in a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that that's wild. I. So you talk about you have lots of people that were in India, and um, this is kind of leading into the last like little note I had down to ask you about. Um, when it comes to organizing, um, do you see like the value in, um, or do you see, like are, are you like looking forward to? like these alternative social medias that are coming up or things like like the, the apps where you can just like Discord where you can send like private like servers and such. Like do these things begin to like appeal to you? Um, are you super thrilled about Elon taking over Twitter, right? <laughs> a lot of this stuff where like uh, it seems like that we really are in a time where a lot is happening with social media that's and it's not all related to of course just this issue, but it is directly core like related to it. Mm -hmm. Like the, the fact that we in the West are being censored for criticizing the other part of the world. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. supposed to be the bastion of, of, of free speech. I, yeah. So I'll let you run with that. Yeah, no, like for example, we have reason to believe that our Twitter, which was the largest atheist centered Twitter on the platform, like was suspended because of our court case in India. We don't know that for sure, but the timing is like, it's, it's too much. We had a court hearing on the 28th and we get suspended on the second. Like, yeah. Anyways, um, I uh, the whole social media and free speech question and these these moral ethical questions that it brings up is so huge. I think it's really difficult. What our tactic is as a 
organization itself is we want to build our own direct mailing list because even if we go to some other smaller platform that's growing that says that they honor these values at the end of the day we do not have control over who we have in contact with yeah we no one can take our newsletter away from us so we not fight yet. to build our newsletter <laughs> um they've got by the, the way bu- guys yeah. if you go to atheistrepublic.com newsletter you can sign up and you get armin's book why there is no god for free and you get our sexy blasphemous art well it's 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 the safer work version for free so go check that out there's a, there's a <laughs> and if you go to only fans you can get the non-safe word version <laughs> patreon oh okay <laughs> you know i'm just joking i'm um, totally kidding so i think um that's a really important shift for us it was just like we just need to shift towards focusing what we can control directly ourselves um in terms of like organizing our community we have consulates or that's what we call them or local groups um chapters what have you around the world in over 70 countries i think over 150 cities roughly um and those are we kind of let them be very autonomous and do their own thing because a lot of the circumstances in different countries is can, can be completely different um but in terms of organizing i see one of the main goals of Atheist Republic is um, if people are interested in activism, the atheist activism, they are welcome to use our community as their their um, platform or avenue towards atheist activism. But in terms of our local community groups, I see that as the most important thing is just to provide community for non-believers, just an alternative to a religious community. Um, it doesn't have to be about, you know, s- spreading corruption in the land um (laughs) but it's just to have people who you can talk to about your non-belief to make sure you don't feel alone to maybe supplement um connections that you lost because of rejection from your family um so those are the the main important things but yeah i do get worried because one of the main ways that our local groups organize or just know to meet up is through social media so i do get worried about the ability for those to just be shut down on a whim. And a lot of it has to do with the intersection of um, the duri- the jurisdiction of any given country and how, you know, like the big five social media companies are going to react to that local jurisdiction. I didn't used to think about it like this, but when I started to look at the legality of it, I actually started to sympathize with some of their, you know, the big five, their behavior a lot more. Like to be able to legally operate in a country, they are subject to the jurisdiction of those countries and they're answerable to (laughs) the legal system of those countries. And if some form of expression that in principle they support and their communities, you know, standards say that they promote is actually illegal in a country that they want to operate in. That's a really tough position for a company to be in, especially in places like India where they will actually go after Facebook employees as private individuals for the behavior of their companies. Like, to a certain extent, they have to protect their own employees. Yeah. The, the police in India literally raided the offices of Twitter India like a year and a half ago. 
you know, so I, you know, in principle, of course, I'm very frustrated and I do have concerns, both, you know, just more pragmatic and, um, more ethical or, um, idealistic. Uh, but when you look at how, you know, the real world messy aspect of it, um, it, it, it colors my opinions a lot more and it, it makes me understand it's not just as simple as like, oh, we should, you know, just really let everything loose on social media. It, it, we, we can't, it's, it's not, it's not going to work. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I wish that, you know, the big five did a better job of fulfilling their commitments to free expression. Um, especially when it comes to taking action against an individual who is on, on behalf of a court that that individual is like not even residing in that, that country that the individual yeah. is not residing in. And that's insane. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. I also understand that they do have legal obligations and it, it is self-protective and they do have an incentive to try to operate in certain markets, whether I like it or not. Right. Yeah. And that's, again, one of the, uh, the things that comes along with nuanced thinking is that you want to be an idealist, but you, uh, you know, and stand on principles, but it doesn't always work out as, as fluidly as one might hope. Um, and then at the end of the day, right, they're a company too. So at the, they're there to make money, right? And yep. they have shareholders and stakeholders that are very real people. And if they don't make money, they building were full, right? So these they're going to make real decisions based on that too. And that's not a completely trivial concern, right? We all like money. Everybody likes money. Everybody needs money. So it does get, it does get nuanced. Um, and uh, yeah, you can thank your, <laughs> your critical thinking skills for, <laughs> right. For, for leading <laughs> yeah, into that. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of a, it's unfortunate when you like leave a very fundamentalist way of thinking and then you go, like you get your new belief system and you're just like, oh yeah. And you, you get all, you know, you're all fundamentalist about it for about five minutes. And then you realize that it, it also doesn't, doesn't lean itself. Yeah. To that I think, you know, it's kind of belief. like a juxtapos- juxtaposition between, um, having ideals. Like I still have these ideals and I yeah. feel passionately about promoting them. Um, but you, you have to think about the consequences you should always consider the consequences. And I think that's how you start to become a, a, a way better thinker. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, one of the, the, the things that Thomas Jefferson said that has stuck with me forever, um, was that a difference in politic is not always a difference in principle. Mm. And that stuck mm-hmm. with me. Um, it has just I think one. about that all the time, and so often when I'm talking to just a friend or something about something, we have two different opinions on it. I'm like, well, let's just go to the principles. Like both of us agree that racism is bad, or both of us agree that free speech should be established. Like, and we need to remember that when we talk to the people. So many this of people. This is how, like, oh my gosh, sorry to interrupt. Go no, it go just run. Made me think <laughs> about how during the summer of 2020, after the death of George Floyd and the real explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, so many people just cut off other people they knew because of their opinions on this subject. And when I've talked to different people, I was always like struck by the fact that you guys are having a public falling out, dragging each other like through social media. 
but the only thing you disagree on is how to best promote prosperity for black people. Yeah. Like you both want that. You just yeah. disagree about the way that it should happen. Like that's not something that you should cast someone aside for. No. You know, it makes me so sad. It does. It does. It's almost unfathomable how far we've like gone from that. We're just because this right-headed figure and this left-headed person have two different ideas. Like one's a big believer um you know and just, you know, reparations maybe and the other one's not. And suddenly this person or that person's a racist. Like we can't it just always goes to the like the epithet, right? It never just mm-hmm. stops it. Well, that's just maybe it's just a different way of thinking about about the the world, and it just it doesn't. I mean, it definitely doesn't do you any service in terms of friendship. Um, which man, if you want to have friends, you better have the capacity for disagreement, right? You better be enjoyable uh, to disagree with because you're not going to have a whole lot of friends. And I don't know about everybody else listening, but. I sure as hell like to have friends and I like to have friends that don't agree with me because that makes life yeah. interesting. Like for, for like uh, most of my best friends to this day are religious are Christians mm-hmm. and um, like my whole family is, and I'm have great relationships with, with virtually everyone that I had pre what back when I was Christian Riley, <laughs> pastor Riley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, like, so yeah, they remained consistent. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think if you're, you truly have to like. It was amazing to see people fall out over that, and it continue. I mean, it's ever since like seems like 2016, right? Ever since Harambe died, it just it's all gone, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's all gone. <laughs> Sorry, everyone always uses that as like the keystone that like lit everything off, and I can't, I can't even make it through a semi-serious podcast without giving a, a shout out <laughs> to like the tipping point. It really was 2016 though. Like everything was so normal, almost. It wasn't, it wasn't really, but. It, it really did take a turn after that but yeah i mean it's just yeah pretty... i was like a, the tumblr generation so for me like i through my adolescence was flavored by you know like this woke very way of thinking so for me it's yeah. like earlier yeah definitely. yeah there were i mean you could see seeds of this in i mean even back when i was a, like and i don't see it now but I, i've re- i have books on my shelf that i identified this coming in the 90s um where you can see like the beginning threads of it and for sure yeah if i like think back to when i was in college which was 2013 to 16 um yeah you can definitely there were for sure things that came up like it was it was on the wall but i'm i imagine that on tumblr which i was not on at that time and on uh and in seattle you probably picked up on it before me and did uh, before before me before I did in Indiana and in Tennessee where I went to school right we're yeah, we're yeah, not yeah. quite to where the coastal folks are oh I've are. been a west coast baby like my whole life it's on a different we're we're, we're a different breed over here <laughs> yeah yeah the the coastal the coastal people are living a whole another life than those of us in flyover country are living it's it's pretty wild like I think that was especially exacerbated during the pandemic when people from like New York mm. would go to Florida and they would get off a plane, right? And everyone's just walking around living their life. And it's almost like we've entered into two different worlds at that point. It's become so, the blue areas and the red areas became so, it was like almost a physical difference, like in the air <laughs> that, that existed. It's a pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty wild. So Susanna, where can everybody find you online? I know we've touched on that a little bit. Um, well, I have, I'm in Twitter jail. I'm, right. I'm beneath the Twitter jail. So <laughs> not, I'm not on Twitter. Not on Twitter. Not until Elon saved you. 
Um, so you can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is kind of silly. It's at uh, triple dimpled, as in like three dimples, because I have three dimples. Um, and the main place where you can find me is on Atheist Republic on YouTube. Um, every week we do a Q&A with me and Armin, uh, who's the founder, as well as my favorite thing is we have our Atheist Republic news show that happens every Saturday where we talk about atheist and secularism related news, religion news from around the world. And um, honestly, if we talk about a lot of like geopolitics. Um, so if you're like a geopolitical nerd, you should definitely check us out. Um, I the amount of knowledge I have about the world now since I discovered Atheist Republic is like night and day. Um, so that's one thing I love about us and our community is that um, we're, we're very focused on just like learning more about the world. And we're also extremely diverse. We have people from like every single religious background that contributes um, to our team and our content. Um, so yeah, definitely check out Atheist Republic on YouTube. That's awesome. That's awesome. And the newsletter, the newsletter too, to get a book. And the right? newsletter. Oh, yeah. if you want something that's more specifically Islamic focused, we also have the side podcast, which is Secular Jihadists for Muslim Enlightenment. And so if you're into ex-Muslim stuff, Islamic criticism, definitely check that out too, because that's a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's all kinds of good info that everybody can go run and get their hands on, so... Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed the conversation yeah. and I, I super appreciate your, your time and uh, being willing to uh, join join uh, me here on, on Doubt Society. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I had fun. All right. Thanks so much.